Two pastors and Tom walk into a bar, but this is no joke. It's the start of a conversation between three friends about culture, God, beer, and more. So pull up a chair, order a pint, and let's get started. Hey, hey, guys, did you hear about when oxygen went out on a date with potassium? It went okay. Get it? A photon checks into a hotel and is asked if it needs help with its baggage. It says, nah, I'm traveling light. Why can you never trust atoms? Because they make up everything. And finally, this is the last one, I promise. An optimist sees the pint glass half full. The pessimist sees the pint glass half empty. The scientist sees it completely full, half with beer, half with air. It's not that funny, but it's sort of topical. Trust me. It's time for another episode of Pine Glass Preachers, where we will be drinking beer, and mine is definitely half empty, and today we are joined by my little brother, who is a real-life scientist, which also makes him a real-life nerd. We'll discuss if faith and science can exist together, or if they will push each other apart like magnets with the same polarity. Although that was way over my head, that was seriously like one of the smoothest things I've ever heard come out of your mouth, Tom. I practiced it like 17 times. No, you did not. <laughs> I know. But it was kind of fun Googling dorky science jokes, though. That's for sure. I wouldn't even know how to go about Googling dorky science jokes, but that's nope, pretty that's, good. That's all you need to do. And Listen, I'm going to give you props, Tom. I am giving you props today, and I'm going to hey. list you among our shout-outs. So our first shout-out for tonight to Tom for doing a great job on the intro. Yep, there you go. Maybe you should practice that, that, uh, that much more often, Tom. It's probably not going to happen that way, but, you know. Well, while you all hold on with bated breath to see how smooth these intros continue to go, make sure to check us out on our Facebook page. That's right. You can find the newest releases of episodes, the newest graphics, and occasionally interesting thoughts, tidbits, and, I don't know, whatever else we post. Uh, but check it out, facebook.com slash pintglasspreachers. Also, we're trying something new. You can text us. So if you have questions, if you find yourself screaming at the radio while you're listening to this podcast while driving to work, or if you're just sitting at your computer interrupting all of your office work, then make sure you can text us your questions, your comments, your concerns. Shoot, you can just yell at us if you want. I don't really care. But that number is 612-208-6258. 612-208-6258. We chose a Twin Cities area code because Tom's old and we always have to respect our elders. So... It's going to go – it looks like it's going to Tom, but it's not his real number. Although – I'm the patriarch of this of this podcast. Although if you really want to stalk him or something, I'd be happy to give you his personal cell phone number. But in the meantime, uh, we would also encourage you to check out our ministry partner, The Gospel Economist. The Gospel Economist is not only an online publication made up of a group of writers and bloggers that seek the story of Jesus Christ and his payment for our sin in our everyday lives, but they also happen to host – class preachers 
So check them out at www.medium.com slash the-gospel-economist. Because why? They got great stuff. But our podcast also happens to be posted there. So that gives you two great reasons to check them out. In the meantime, I need a drink because I am thirsty after all that talking. What are you going to be drinking, Josh? Oh, Tom, Tom, you're so sweet. I'm so glad you asked. I know. You know, um, I, it's it's sort of a throwback, but not really. Back to my days growing up in Northern California, uh, Sierra Nevada, not their pale ale, which has been a staple pretty much around the country now. But I ran into this thing at the store the other day. It's called uh, their 2017 Beer Camp Golden IPA. It's a spring seasonal, and their little tagline is a new beer every year. So this year, it's a golden IPA, and it's quite delicious. Hey, that sounds delicious. Uh, if you listen to our last episode, you will notice that my voice was a bit off, a bit ragged, uh, getting deeper by the moment. But what? Uh, yeah, the last episode, my voice was terrible. No, wait, a, a, bit, uh, a bit what? How did you describe it? Ragged. Ragged? Like Reagan? Ragged. R-A-G-G-E-D. Say the word bagel for me, Tom. Oh, geez, we don't need to do this. Okay, fine. California, what are you man. drinking? What are you drinking? Well, this cold, this flu influenza thing has followed me for two weeks, and so I'm still hacking up a lung, and so I am drinking a hot toddy tonight. A uh, little bit of tea, a little bit of honey, a little bit of bourbon. It's fantastic. Is that what a hot toddy is? Yeah. Gosh, I, I, I should be I mean, embarrassed I, because I worked at a bar for a long, long time, and I don't think I ever served I don't any, know how many bars are serving hot, toddy. hot toddies. Well, like, I mean, you know, you know, the cool kids get up and they want to drink hot tea with bourbon. Look, a hot toddy is like something grandma drinks and that like she wants to put a little bit of a little bit of bourbon in there just because, you know, a little nipper. And so that's maybe because th that's the only time hot toddy. Oh, geez. <laughs> that's terrible. Isn't it? All right. Gabe, Gabe, what are you drinking? G Gabe? Chirp, chirp. Gabe's not here tonight. Why is Gabe not here? Uh, we'll probably we can let him talk about this more later. But Gabe is uh, Gabe's at dinner with uh, with his fellow pastor tonight, and he may join us later. He may not, but we don't need him. We can carry this conversation. That's right. Forget Gabe. He's out. <laughs> Forget Gabe. That's the new uh, that's the new tagline for our uh, <laughs> for our podcast. Forget Gabe. Yep, I like it. Uh, well, we don't, we don't need Gabe to talk about uh, what we're talking about tonight. We are talking about, about science. We're talking about faith, we're, about how they work together. Uh, especially in the last couple of years, I feel like we've had an increased discussion, dialogue, argument in not only just the church, but in national media as well around uh, how faith and science work together. Uh, you know, I'm seeing, at least from, from my perspective, I'm seeing the church just is denying all sorts of sciencey type things and science is taking every opportunity to take a swipe at at religion and faith and it just seems like there is no common ground between the two uh are, are you seeing some of those same things or is that or is that just me no totally um i mean i don't I, what's weird is i don't know if i if if maybe i'm just out of the loop but it doesn't seem to be as antagonistic in terms of like the media. And maybe that's because people are kind of over, you know, like launching volleys of 
you know, bombs at each other because of it. <clears throat> and I don't know if it's because it's taken a back seat or if there are other more pressing, say, sociopolitical issues that have arisen, you know, that can divide not just, you know, the faith community with the political community, but the church and the rest of the country, basically. So I, I, I totally agree. Uh, but I will say this. Do you know what one common denominator is between science and faith? What? This is a shout out to a science teacher, professor that I had at Concordia University, Irvine. All right. And Skylar, if you're listening, you'll remember this, but I don't think you are. So I'm just going to share it anyway. This was the perfect intersection of science and faith. We went to the professor's house and upon his kitchen sill sat a statue of a pelican. And do you know what placard that pelican had, Tom? What? It read, a wonderful beak, or a wow, oh, oh my gosh, I just screwed that up. A wonderful bird is the pelican. Its beak can hold more than its belly can. Did you get that? Science and faith. It's there beautiful. you have it, folks. Wise beyond years. What does that have to do with anything? I'm just saying because he was a science professor at a Christian college, and here I became a pastor, and I was taking this biology class that I had to take. And we went to his house for dinner, and I saw that statue. It was the most amazing thing. I share it with everyone I come in contact with. A wonderful bird is a pelican, Tom. Its beak can hold more than its pelican. I don't know what better introduction we need into a conversation about science and faith than that. We're going to break. Five minutes, I can come up with a Nope, nope, we're going way to break. Better. See you on the other side of the break. Bye. See ya. See ya. All right, welcome back. We are going to kick off this discussion about science and the church or science and religion, however you want to look at it. And joining us today, as I've said already, is my is my brother, Dr. Brian O'Neill, who is an aquatic biologist at UW-Whitewater. That's in Wisconsin, everybody. And uh, we're just excited to have you here. I know Brian has recently started to listen to the podcast and has kind of blown through all the episodes at this point. Got so, or Brian. Yeah, so thank you for finally listening to something that I do, Brian. Uh, <laughs> why don't you Why don't you tell us a little bit about about what you do? What is an aquatic biologist? Go from there. All right. So yeah, I'm an aquatic biologist. All right. First, should ask how nerdy of an answer do you want from me? Probably the well, most Brian, nerdy. I just you could all things that you say are nerdy. So you know, whatever you want to do. All right, for all the listeners out there, imagine me saying this while I'm pushing my glasses up with my finger that are taped together uh, <laughs> with masking tape. Anyway, I am an aquatic biologist. I study basically all life that lives in the water. Not all life by any means. But, um, um, yeah, I'm doing um, some aquatic research. I look at specifically invertebrates, so things that don't have a backbone, how they um, live, what they do, how what who eats them, what they eat, and then um, how that changes over time. I do that specifically in um, ponds that don't last very long, but you know, I'm also a, a 
biology professor. I teach classes. I teach aquatic biology classes, ecology classes, and probably what's most important for this uh, podcast is a um, uh, introductory biology for non-science majors. Whoa. Well, well, speaking of a non-science major, aka me, I I hate to say this, Brian, but you they send you to the ponds that they don't expect to last very long or that like aren't around very long. Like, how did you get the short end of you know the the stick on these ponds? Like, they just send you the ones that are like gonna evaporate or what? That are like, like mostly land. Yeah. So like yeah. puddles. They're not even ponds, but you get to go to the puddles and look at like those weird you know, like multi-pronged insects that just like float on the top. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, really, really what it comes down to is when I was in grad school, my advisor had money to study those and was like, Hey, you want to do this? And I was like, wait, I get paid. Yep. Yep. I do. (laughs) So you sold out for invertebrate ponds. Well, I, I mean, I like invertebrates. Oh, okay. But then I went for, yes, I sold out completely. Absolutely. All right, so basically all of this to say we have a guest who knows about science and might be able to answer some of our <laughs> questions. <laughs> he probably – like we're probably not even going to be asking the right questions, Tom. Like let's just be honest. We're not going to be asking like, anything about I'm, aquatic biology. Like the only thing I could think of in my head was asking him about gar, like that type uh, of yeah. fish. But then he goes, he only does invertebrates. And I, Wait, do gar have – Yes, they have they have a backbone. Yeah, yeah, see, look at that. Look at that. I, the one thing that I wanted to ask, like, isn't actually permissible because it's not his field of expertise. <laughs> we are starting so terribly right now. This is great. Well, let's let's just jump into I uh, Brian, you just hopped on, but for our intro, we kind of talked about how it, it seems, at least it, to my perspective, increasingly the church and and or religion and science have been at odds, but that that's really not anything new. I mean, we can go back to uh, back to the olden days. I mean, you have Galileo and the church fighting over whether the Earth was the center of the universe or not. And so, like when you were born, this, <laughs> yes, just a couple of years actually before I was born. But the, this has kind of been a a, a thing throughout, but. You're a science. You're a scientist. You teach science. You are in that field. Uh, I, I guess I want to ask you first. It seems like the sciences is a tough place to be a Christian. Uh, what are the, some of the challenges that you face in being a Christian in a very non-believing field? Sure. So, um, for me, I think that science is, you know, the process of science is really the scientific method. It's just a method to answer scientific questions, okay? So for what is that method? I'm really ignorant. Okay, so first out, it starts off with a hmm moment or like you observe something, right? So you observe something about a natural process. You ask a question, why does it do that? Whether we're, so you see some animal do something weird, okay? Why does that animal do that weird thing? then you formulate a hypothesis. I think that animal does a weird thing because it's hungry. Okay, go out then and find a way to test that. Maybe we find hungry animals and non-hungry animals and see if it does that weird thing, okay? This is obviously a really simplified version of it, but 
um, you test it, you get an answer, and then you tell other people, hey, this is what I found, and this is what I think is going on here. And then other people then can go and say, is this true? Is this true in another area? And they basically, it steamrolls from there. People pick up that, that question at other places. What's the weird thing the animal is doing? <laughs> <laughs> or better yet, what's the weirdest thing you've ever observed an, a creature or animal doing? My, my favorite thing to talk about in class is not that I have observed it, but they're, you know, the fangly dangly fish. They're the fish that have that little thing on their, their foreheads that attracts other fish. Completely unaware. Okay, check it out. Angler fish. It's actually fish. called a fangly dangly fish. Well, it's an angler fish. Oh, gotcha. Hey, I saw it's one an, of those on my kids go fish cards the other day. Yeah, it's, it's on Finding Nemo when Dory goes down to the way down deep. Anyway, oh, no way. Um, and they have the big nasty teeth and they're really ugly. Oh, the females are these big, big fish that do the thing. The males are these tiny little fish that are like two inches long. And all they do is their whole purpose in life is to find a female. Once they find a female, they attach to the female. The female's body absorbs the male fish so that the male fish becomes parasitic on the female and do like degenerates into just a testicle that produces sperm for the female. Okay. I don't know if I actually believe that. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds super bizarre. Like yep. Tom, do you have any experience in this? No. <laughs> when you, when you and Jen got married, was it like an anglerfish situation? It, it's that's basically all of our marriages, right? <laughs> I mean, we just digress into testicles. Yep, that's right. For, so that for, is the weird thing that that animal does. Why you know, does that male just de degenerate into a testicle? There you go. Can we just stop right now? That was. I feel like we should just end because that was amazing. That was so good. Good, good episode, everybody. <laughs> yep. Woo! Thank you. Yes, we can all leave here affirmed and encouraged. Yeah, you're welcome. You're but I believe, Brian, the question was not what happens to anglerfish, but what okay. are the challenges that you face in being a Christian? So here's the thing. Um, pure science has no problem with religion. Okay. It's asking these questions. Now, um, so pure science asks these what questions. How does the anglerfish mating system work? How does the universe work? What is the universe made out of? Okay. Now, religion is also about asking questions, in my opinion, too. It's, but they're different questions. Why do we exist? Why does the universe exist? They're the why questions. Okay. So these questions of science and religion are actually mutually exclusive. They're not asking the same questions. They can be sometimes about the same topics, but the questions are completely different. Um, one thing I like to think about, there's a quote by Martin Luther King that said, um, science investigates, religion interprets. Science gives man knowledge, which is power. Religion gives man wisdom, which is control. Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. The two are not rivals. So they're just not talking about the same thing. And that's fine because they don't have to interfere with each other. So ju just to simplify this, because I think, I think I hear what you're saying, that 
that science is basically like making sense or interpreting um, ob observable things. Mm -hmm. But religion is trying to interpret those same observable things on an existential philosophical moral you know kind of plane yes absolutely dude the, pr the problem becomes is when so that's pure science but science is done by people and we screw it up right Scre so it's screwed up because they insert they themselves religious? into it no the, well no 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 the non-religious people insert themselves into it, insert their egos into it, insert them. And it, it just, it, um, they, when, as they try to put themselves into it, they're not, it's not pure science anymore. They're breaking the scientific method essentially. Because they're offering I, interpretation. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, let me, let me ask this because I see, kind of two areas where where science and religion kind of end up butting heads because I, I agree with brian you know this mutually exclusive concept and that they shouldn't have a problem with each other which, which is fine but i think there's two areas <coughs> there's two areas where science is kind of going right up against religion when you look at how the universe was created and how things came into being, that seems to fly directly in the face of creationism. And then the other places where we start to play God a little bit with like stem cell research and, and things like that. What are your thoughts? Um, so I think that the second issue definitely is all about, you know, putting limits on our scientific knowledge as we are increasing our scientific knowledge we are getting things that you know become morally ethically wrong to do and that's where people of religion have a place to step in and say we shouldn't be doing this um i see it as not necessarily a you know the but, the, but the moral argument like with stem cell research though is that we shouldn't do it because it's playing God. We play God all the time when I create a light bulb and we just created light. I mean, well, that's why just by is, the means why we is... can do whatever we want, right? Sure, why not? <laughs> I mean, you could you could also argue that God has given us this knowledge and God has given us this the, the resources to make these things happen. Sure. I mean, but then you're just being what you can do whatever you want. And I, I, I mean, I think, we know that to be not the case, whether you are religious or not. Yeah. Yeah. So, so go back then to the creation evolution kind of thing. I don't see it as that. Um, I see it as, um, you know, people in the church or people view, um, so, some people view, science as taking over god okay and a lot of religious people i think say that um or a lot of like atheists will say that religion is neil degrasse tyson said this that religion is an ever receding pocket of scientific ignorance meaning that what we don't know is just god and since science is per 
proceeding at an incredible rate, God is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But, Hmm. um, I mean, that isn't, in my opinion, that ever, even if you want to work within that viewpoint, it's not, science is not replacing God. It's just revealing an ever more complex God that we can then explore and see how he has, what he has created for us. It's, it's funny you say, I, I and, and I don't want to like <clears throat> overly, you know, analyze that, that particular phrase, but one of the, to, to kind of highlight exactly what you're talking about, you know, one of the common arguments that I hear from both religious and non-religious people is like just the, the introduction or discovery, I don't know the exact term, but like when carbon dating, you know, uh, all of a sudden came on the scene, then you've got this really direct seemingly competition between, Hey, we can carbon date these things that are millions, billions, you know, trillions of years old, but Hey, Christian or Hey Muslim, you know, you believe that the world is only like 6,000 years old. Like, you're an idiot. That's not possible. You know what I'm saying? And so like, I see a lot of those direct correlations when it comes to the the antagonism between faith and science. But at the same time, like, is there, I, I just wonder if within the scientific community, obviously there's a belief that all things, like every answer or every question of the human mind can be answered eventually by science, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, there's, there's that like raging optimism. Sure. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't, is that fair? I, I, sorry, that, that was more of a question than just like a statement. That, that's not fair because a true scientist will say that any question, the why questions are not touchable, should not be touched by science. Okay. Those why do we exist? A true scientist would say we can't ask those. Okay. And anything that has to do with supernatural the science, science cannot touch. It's specifically designed to not touch it. Right, but 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 when you're talking about going back to your carbon dating thing, I mean that that that's a physical thing. That's not a why thing. Sure, but it is all it. I mean, I think our church has changed its viewpoint on a lot of things in the past. Okay, so like you were saying with Galileo and Copernicus, right? The heliocentric theory, we used to think the world was flat. We used to think that the sun revolved around the earth and it was heresy. Harry to... Irving still thinks the world is flat. <laughs> right. Well, he's done. <laughs> so, oh, you interrupted me, Tom. Thanks. Great. Spoken like a true scientist, though. He's dumb. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, he... Dr. Olin, you can't keep a train of thought during simple conversation. It's my it's my fault. Uh, simpletons, we're so distracting. <laughs> yeah, right. So <laughs> the the church has changed, right? It its viewpoint on heliocentric theory, on the sun being the center, right? Um, yep. Do does the church need to change its viewpoint on the time scale that Earth has existed, the universe has existed? Does that, I, th- I mean, that's a personal question for you maybe, but does that say anything about God's power 
whether he created it or not. No, it does not. It's well, see, just ah, see, that's so funny because that's something that I that I struggle with personally because I, I'm not one to just blanketly like ignore science. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. the what what I like to believe is the little smart person inside of me, and I mean little in a very physical way. The little smart person inside of me, um, you know, saying like, okay dinosaur bones i mean i was a kid i love dinosaurs my kids love dinosaur bones i like i can't explain that from a biblical perspective you know what i'm saying like there's there's nowhere in scripture that talks about dinosaurs and when and how they existed or died or anything like that you know what i'm saying and so like i really don't have if i'm honest with myself and my own theology i don't have a leg to stand on to accuse science of of being in the wrong when it comes to dating the earth based on bone records of, you know, dinosauric activity or whatever. Right. Um, So I think, I I think that goes back to that mutual exclusivity that you don't need to have a theological answer for everything. There are scientific answers for things that can stand on their own that the, the Bible says nothing about cloning. The Bible says nothing about specific, a computer, right? There sure. are some things that are okay to leave just in the science world and some things that are perfectly okay to leave in the re- religious world. But what about when those when those two conflict directly? You know what I mean? Like I am a creationist through and through. Like I take um I, I'm sort of a pseudo-literalist when it comes to Genesis. Like I, I actually believe that God created everything in seven days or in six days, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Like I, I buy into that on a on a theological, on a spiritual, on a faith based level. Yet at the same time, I can't explain how carbon dating can demonstratively prove that something is older than six thousand years, or at least the timeline. You know what I mean? And so, like, I, I think at least from so, a Christian perspective, the temptation is to get caught in this like rabbit hole of explaining our way out of something that doesn't quite make as much sense. So like, Hey, I believe God created, you know, everything in six days, but maybe those six days weren't actual 24 hour periods of day. And so then therefore the day could be stretched and stretched into, you know, thousands of years or millennia. And I think that gets us from a, from a church or a theological perspective into kind of like a tailspin of explaining away our own faith. But at the same time, like, I don't know, I, I just see those in direct conflict yet. I don't know how to reconcile them because I don't completely disregard scientific evidence and, and things that and, and arguments made by science. Yet at the same time, I'm just like cannot get away from a you know strict six day creationist kind of perspective on the origins of life. Well, and, and that's kind of the interesting piece about this because science is huge. Like astronomy and how the how the the universe was created and all this is one part of science. We have molecular biology and chemistry and you know physics and all this church isn't going to argue that inertia exists that covalent bonds exist that you know, all this kind of stuff we don't argue those types of things so that's brian where I, where you're you know where i really see that mutually exclusiveness mutual exclusiveness but but it it always does come back to that creation versus evolution how how this universe got started because those two almost they can't be mutually exclusive so my answer to that is the age of a dinosaur bone how does that impact your salvation 
because that's where well, to for for me that's but, where it starts because if the, if we read from scripture that and we interpret scripture in a way that says this earth was created started 10,000 years ago and now you're you're going to take away that whole underpinning of it well then why is why would we think the rest of the bible is anything more than just words written down well to to take it on even more basic level i don't see that as a as a salvific question you know what i'm saying like i don't i don't see the 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 linear timeline of the evolution of life as as one of those linchpins of salvation but at the same time um i i have a hard time reconciling it because like i, I guess this is really what i'm getting at okay it seems completely just outlandish that I believe that some dude named God spoke and all of life as we know it was created in six days. All right. I, I understand that that sure. just seems preposterous, but at the same time, I've always been equally as confused as to why science in general won't admit that the same propensity towards, you know, like preposterousness it isn't applied to the fact that somehow the complexity of life as we know it formed from a random ex implosion explosion of atoms in primordial goop you know what i mean like sure. you know what i mean like to to me there's there's a certain amount of faith that is is brought into both and like from us for, from a christian perspective it's a religious faith okay it's it's trying to answer those questions of why or at least wrestle with the why with what we experience and in, in all of my dealings with science, like, which are very, very limited, obviously. However, I see the same, you know, I see the same DNA that, that we, we take things on faith. And, and actually you said, and, and maybe it was just my misunderstanding, but you said the theory of, um, oh, what was it that you were just mentioning? Because like there's a difference, right, between a theory and something that's actually proven to be true, right, by multiple tests or something like that in the scientific method. <laughs> uh, so you're going to get me into this semantic rabbit hole, but science actually can't prove anything. It can only disprove stuff. Okay, great. That's beautiful. So because of that very fact, like I think that the, the, the one common ground that both science and the church or science and religion or spirituality, whatever you want to call it, share, share is, is faith. You know what I mean? Like if, mm -hmm. if a true scientist and, and pure science would say, we can't prove anything. We can only disprove something. Then you're taking as much about the observable world on faith as I am a, a scriptural worldview. You know what I mean? Or is yeah. that not – I don't know. That, to me, obviously, it sounds like a super Christianese, you know, like religious <laughs> answer. And I'm sure the scientific community just like scoffs at that. But I, I just to, can't get to away me, from it. To me, it's an issue of control, okay? So Christians are afraid of – science resting the control from god that these mathematical equations govern our world okay and i think scientists the true really atheist scientists are afraid of that um giving up that control because in a in a completely um godless scientific worldview man has all that power we have that control to say we know how the world works and this is where it is for me as a christian scientist 
I give up some of that control to God, knowing that I know where my salvation lies, the cross, and a lot of that other control issues are just, hey, God, you deal with that. But for the scientist, is it even man's control or is it the control of nature? Because like See, I think it's men, man's control. Men didn't in, but like men didn't invent, you know, these these scientific formulas that govern universal structure. You know what I mean? Like they, mm, they discovered okay. it, right? They discovered the theory of or they discovered how gravity works, or they discovered how I mean, I like I said, I'm I'm really not that well versed in terms of like all the technical terms, but like they they discover because like the very first thing you said was that the first step in the scientific method is observation, right? So sure. like Newton was observing gravity and then mm -hmm. he articulated the observation of gravity through a mathematical formula. And, and so it was wrong. Oh, for real? Yeah. Oh, no so, way. Oh, Newton. Newton, super smart guy, invented calculus, taught us, approx I will say, approximated gravity very well. Okay. Einstein comes around in the 20s and is like, nope. Newton, you're wrong. And even though Einstein's a really smart guy, right? He Gravity is no longer just the attraction of large masses. It's the bending of space-time, okay? Sure. But now, what we know from now, figuring out, Einstein was wrong. And we don't really know how to reconcile it. Because gravity Wait, works. seriously? Yeah. Gravity works at the very large scale, general relativity. And we have a different idea of gravity at the small scale, special, uh, like quantum mechanics. Okay. Reconciling those two things, we don't know how to do. So doesn't that just sort of like reinforce the point that it's never been man's control, but so, so forget God entirely. If we put this into a scientific paradigm, then man is really just simply trying to discern the power of nature and articulate it in human terms I, mm, I yeah but i still think there's some sort there's an ego issue there where if we can figure out how nature works we can control it oh okay i, I see what you're saying i see what you're saying but yeah. no, i mean the same I temptation mean, the same we temptation do though this in the church because you know how many how many religious bodies say that if we can figure out how God works and we can then thus control him and manipulate him, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So t Tom, you, you were saying something. We do control nature. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. In certain aspects we do, we start to do some of that kind of stuff, whether it's medical or desalination plants or whatever. We, we build structures to take away the elements. We figured out how to do a lot of different things. And, and so there's a biblical mandate to do that, right? Uh, subdue the sure. earth and fill it, right? God gives us sure. dominion over the earth in Genesis, right? The problem then lies when what's that definition of dominion, right? A biblical definition of dominion means we should take care of it. We should shepherd it. We should keep it around for other people. Whereas other people think, well, some maybe super hardcore right-wing people will be like, well, that means we can do whatever we want with it. But, you know, like Jesus would never have dominion over something in that way. Sure. So 
but so so I yes I do think we control can control nature in some some respects of it but not everything by any means you know no, it, but we but we keep going down that road and being being able to control more and more or there's we a think, limit to that yeah or we think we can like this is going to be a really terrible example Brian forgive me <laughs> but speaking of what is that guy's name? Neil Tyson DeGrasse? DeGra- Neil DeGrasse Tyson. Neil DeGrasse Tyson, right? Uh, I am super obsessed with space and astronomy and just like Star Trek, Star Wars, all that kind of you know, like science fiction is I geek out in. And I know I know your brother does too. But I was sure. watching the the recent series Mars, in which he was like one of the narrators and you know, talked about all the scientific stuff and everything. But I think that kind of proves a point that unless we have this really optimistic view of the capability of, of human dominance, you know what I mean? Like at least in that show, and I know you're an aquatic biologist, but <laughs> I'm sure a lot of the sciences overlap just in terms of process and perspective mm-hmm. and approach mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. You know, and it was just like, while I was watching that, I just thought to myself, like, here we are. Like you look at Mars, this terribly inhospitable planet, a rock that's floating around the sun, just like ours, but with, way less amenities and the only reason that we want to colonize mars is just simply to demonstrate our control over the cosmos yeah. like what what else what else is there on mars for us other than the demonstration of you know like you said earlier control sure i mean i think others would say an escape route if we screw up earth enough but no, that's fair i guess yeah. I think that's also putting like a more negative connotation on it. It's playing semantics again. I mean, why do we claim Mount Everest? Because because it's there, because we can, you know, like it's you know, we conquered that and that seems to be an okay thing, but as soon as we go to Mars, that's a bad thing. No, I'm not saying that. I'm I'm saying even Everest was controlled because look how we've destroyed the ecosystem on Mount Everest. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like we we want control no matter the cost. That's a pretty typical human response for our, almost everything. Exactly, which is what, once again, like I think there's so many I, – I, I just wish there wasn't the antagonism between science and religion because there's so many similarities, at least from, if you're coming from a, a Christian point of view that sets the, the, like the starting point or the basis of, of humanity as corrupt, sinful, selfish, controlling you know what i mean like all, all the negative things we can imagine about humanity then actually it religion and science and, and the pursuit in, in both of those areas actually fits quite seamlessly yeah yeah i think so i think there's that divvying up of those questions who what when where how is is really a good thing because we don't really want pure science to answered some of these questions for us. Do some scientists want the want that though? Like pure you know, you mentioned like your pure super atheist, not irreligious or non-religious scientists. Have you, one, I guess have you come across really really hardcore scientists like that and two, no matter how much they deny it, do they still either on the outside or deep inside really want the why, even though it sort of goes against their scientific nature. Um, so, I mean, if you read something like Richard Dawkins or 
um, some of the cosmologists, they're the people that talk about the formation of the universe, right? From a centric perspective, it's the study of the beginnings of the universe. Um, talk to them. And I think every time you read one of those books, it's all about these, they're getting lost in the wonder of the universe, right? And they think it's so cool to think of us as one tiny little atom on one planet on you know out of the billions of galaxies that are out there right so and to me I just I always see that as a really just empty argument that you're seeing wonder in being nothing and to me that just goes against who we are as people and who we God has revealed himself to be so I think they are asking those why questions and certainly they do, but they really shouldn't. And when they do that, I think it really gets, they don't, they don't have a leg to stand on them. That is so good. You know, Brian, you mentioned uh, Richard Dawkins there. I just from a perspective of are, are there, are there Christian scientists out there? Are there, uh, or at least, books or things that we should be, who would you recommend we be reading or listening to uh, to get a little bit more perspective on this? It's not crazy atheist. Ken That's, Ham. Ken Ham, he's a good one. <laughs> Read him, Tom. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Nope. And I'll uh, say why. Because while, while while, I know there's going to be someone listening to this who's like, why not Ken Ham? Ken Ham. I don't like listening to Ken Ham because he argues science from a biblical perspective and it doesn't help. If you are having a discussion with an atheist, it doesn't help to argue from the, from the Bible. If they don't believe the basis of the Bible to begin with, it drives me nuts. Right. Um, so I can think of one website, biologos.org. Um, which is a bunch of Christian biologists that talk about how science and um, science and religion are not, you can be both, right? So it's, it's from a biological context. Um, but honestly, I have to say, you should read everything, right? Like science, you should, all people should be reading science should be what I call scientific, scientifically literate. Okay. So scientifically literate means you are able to evaluate science based on its method and source. You're able to like inform yourself on scientific concepts. You're able to change your viewpoint when presented with good evidence. Right. So you can go out and ask these questions from yourself based on your own curiosity and doing that shouldn't, in my opinion, destroy your faith. So you should be reading things like Richard Dawkins, in my opinion, because he brings up a lot of good points, right? And knowing the opposite side of an argument only generally so, only strengthens your own argument. Okay, so you just said something, Brian. I, I wasn't going to bring this up, but I, I feel like we should just for a moment here. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, no, you said, and this is good, you, you said when presented with, with arguments and facts and data, the, 
you should be able to change your opinion. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. With careful consideration and thought. Of, With careful consideration yeah, yeah. and all this, right. Why, this is kind of a question for all of us, but why does the church in general have a problem with global warming? It's always the, it's Republican religious right that does not believe in global warming. Well, why, why is that? Why are those things together all the time? Right. So I think that's a failure of, and this is particularly American politics, right? Right, the, right. The Republican Party has glommed on to the evangelical Christian movement and said, you're our party, okay? Then right. there's an, another part of the Republican Party that says business is important given, is important above all things. Making money is important above all things. Look at Trump's, um, all his movements lately since he's been um, inaugurated on attacking science, right? Everything has been to promote business above all else, promote making money, making it easier to make money. And so, and with that, then global warming doesn't go with that. You can't like protecting against global warming. You can't do if you value money above all else. But the interesting thing there is that the Republican Party sits in the middle and it, it's bringing business to, to its side. It's bringing religion to its side. But then religion has, has said, yeah, OK, it's this pass through that. OK, we're, we're cool with with this, that the global warming doesn't exist. Why, well, is, it lo- a, why is it a threat? It's, it's 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 not. It's a complete lie to say that global warming doesn't exist. Right. You are either. Right. So. Global warming exists. There's no problem with that from a religious perspective, right? Exactly. There's not a single one. People screw up things. That's just what we do, right? (laughs) Yes. So true. So so making this, it's Republicans just saying, oh, hey, we need to help out our big business. Hey, evangelical Christians, global warming doesn't exist. And then they can, that's all it is. It's just a bait and switch. Ah, the human mind. So fickle. So, so fickle. All right. Uh, before we let you go, Brian, I think the, the last question that that I'd like to ask is, has your faith been strengthened by your discoveries and learnings while in the science field? So I, I, I don't know about faith because science doesn't inform my faith but science does inform my wonder at God's universe, okay? So um, when, when we see how our world is being, how our world works, what laws govern our world, it doesn't limit God. It just shows the foresight that he had when he was creating and deigned the world to be how it is, okay? So... There's, I think there's oftentimes maybe two perspectives when we think about how, how our world works. So there's some people that think about God having the world in his hands, keeping it spinning like a basketball on the tip of your finger, right? And God is sitting there with his hand 
spinning the basketball, continuing to spin the basketball, keeping it up on his finger, right? Well, my viewpoint is that I think of God as engineering a system that has kept the world spinning. And, you know, my question is then, which is more powerful? Which is a more powerful God? A God that sits with a basketball and has to continuously spinning, that keeps it, requires consistent maintenance, or one a God that engineered something so well that it doesn't require maintenance because it was set up so perfectly. So my wonder at how God has created this universe to be as it is and be as awesome, expansive, massive, and mysterious as it is, and we're continuing to learn you know, new things all the time about how it is, that has been strengthened by my time searching, looking, and doing science. You know, that answer, Brian, thank you. Really great. Uh, that last piece about the basketball, I feel like we could do an entire episode around that. Seriously. And would best be had with Gabe in the room because he would have an absolute meltdown existential meltdown he would because he'd be like what happens if the basketball falls what if it stops spinning what if it stops spinning on its axis how big is the basketball yeah (laughs) well game poor gabe god figured it out before you had that problem (laughs) all right well thanks for being on the on the show with us brian we really appreciate it uh we appreciate your knowledge and the absolute smarty pantsness that you bring to the science discussion thanks it was fun all right we're gonna go to break and when we come back we will i don't know we'll probably wrap up and say some not smart things about science totally hope you can hear the purring of my cat. It's not aquatic biology, but she's a cat. So I'm sure if it's somewhere in the realm of biology. And that conversation with one Dr. Brian O'Neill was so enlightening that I felt like I needed to reconnect with nature. And so I'm petting my cat Pringles on my lap and she's purring very loudly and scratching my leg. Tom, don't look disinterested. I know that you're jealous. And I know Gabe is especially jealous because he loves cats. He especially loves my cat Pringles. But in the meantime, honestly, this was a great conversation uh, with Brian. Very, very insightful. And it was so good, as a matter of fact, that Tom and I have made the unilateral decision to continue this conversation completely centering around the spinning basketball analogy for our next episode. We also fully acknowledge, after careful observation and hypothesizing, that Gabe is not going to go back and listen to this episode that we recorded without him. So we can be almost guaranteed that he'll have no idea what we're talking about next episode. And we're just going to spring it on him last minute. So stay tuned for the next episode. Uh, If you want to enjoy Gabe squirm, have another existential crisis, talk about balls spinning and falling and all that other good stuff. But in the meantime, I'm just going to keep petting my cat Pringles.
Well, while you do that, I'm going to do some shout outs. Of course, we always want to shout out uh, Janet O'Neill. This is probably going to be the best ep- or her favorite episode because both of her sons are on at the same time. So you guys have she'll be very excited. Are you the only two kids? Yeah. Dude. We're, we're it. Janet. Both the boys back together. The boys are back in town. Oh, boy. Well, not really. <laughs> well, we're at least together online. And so uh, I also want to shout out Sarah Newton. Uh, she gave us some great feedback, said she really liked the show, and she told friends about our about our podcast. So Thanks, thank Sarah. you very much for listening, for shouting us out to your friends. Uh, lastly, uh, we want you to we're, – we're trying this new thing out, social media call-outs. You can text us, 612-208-6258. Again, 612-208-6258. Let us know if you think Pickle Dip is awesome or not. You disgusting. really should in the world. So disgusting. Can we get Brian? Where's that, Brian? Can we get Brian back here about a Pickle Dip vote? Brian? Yeah. Brian, are, are you still with us? I say nay. Thank you, Brian. And with that, we're out.